We are going to jump into our sermon now, our walk through the Old Testament book of Nahum. So we found last week that Nahum is a chipper little book. It is a prophecy, uh, which means foretelling uh, God's destruction of Nineveh, um, which is the capital of Assyria. But if we're paying attention to the greater story in the Bible, we understand the story that's being told is not necessarily about Nineveh or Assyria. The story is really being told about God himself. So questions we may have. Who is this divine being? What is he like? Those questions are being answered in part in this series. And last week we saw that he is a being who ferociously loves his own people. He hates that which seeks to destroy those that he loves. So he's willing to go and to fight for those that he cares about. But this revelation about who God is, is being communicated through the story of Assyria and Nineveh. Now this is a world power, one of the great civilizations that the world has ever seen. History has marveled at their conquests and the powerful position that they were able to attain through their exploits. But God was not so impressed with what they accomplished. Through the use of brutal force, abuse, and exploitation of humanity, Assyria rose to prominence. But now we find God in the book of Nahum squaring off against this evil empire. Now, the verses that we're looking at this morning are kind of a confusing mess of they's and you's. And so we'll try to untangle some of that as we read through these verses. So Nahum chapter 1, if you've got a Bible or device, you can turn or swipe there. Or you can follow along on the screen as well. Verse 7 is where we're going to begin. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into, into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end, and trouble will not rise up a second time. For they, being Nineveh, are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they, being Nineveh, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Now he speaks about Judah, his people. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke, being Nineveh's yoke, from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. All right. 
So verse 7 begins in a way that offers an abrupt shift from verses 2 through 6, which, fo- which focused on the vengeance and the anger and the wrath of God. Nahum is making a declarative statement here about God that may be hard for the inhabitants of Judah to believe. They've been ravaged by Assyria. They are literally shaking in their sandals. So their propensity is to question whether God exists at all. Or if he does exist, they may assume that he is evil. So, so they may wrestle with questions like this. How can God allow such wicked circumstances to persist? Now, part of the answer that we heard last week is contained in the phrase, the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. And this is an amazing gift to us that he is slow to anger because every single person who walks the face of the earth deserves God's wrath. But we also will find ourselves questioning the wisdom when it doesn't seem that the wisdom of God being slow to anger when that doesn't seem to benefit us. So part of the answer to the aforementioned question of how can God allow such wicked circumstances to persist is that God is calling all nations to himself, okay? Not just us. As much as we may see ourselves As God's favored nation, we are not the sole apple of God's eye. Judah was God's people. They were God's people chosen by him. Assyria initially invaded Judah because God was judging his people for sin. He was disciplining his people for sin. So as God called Judah to repent of their sins, he also called Assyria. He also called Nineveh to repent of their sins. And he calls America. He calls all nations today to repent of their sins. So Nahum writes, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So God's patience in being slow to anger is not evil. His patience is not evil, nor is his vengeance against the sin, against his enemies. That is not evil either. He is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. When his trouble comes upon Assyria, they will melt in fear. They will find that they are not a sufficient stronghold. That all of their power that they thought existed was merely a mirage. Now, this instructs us today. No matter what we feel about God in a given season, no matter what we might walk through in our lives, God is good. He is good. The Bible is replete with examples of this. The fact that he is slow to anger demonstrates his goodness. The fact that he loves us sacrificially, ultimately we see this on the cross. It depicts the fact that he is good. The the reality that he takes horrific circumstances and he works good for us in and through them, giving meaning to the worst of things that we walk through points to his goodness. 
So in trouble, whatever trouble might look like for us today, whatever trouble might look like in days that follow, God's goodness holds. It does not fade. It does not change. And then we see in verses 8 and 9 that God will make a complete end of Syria. This is a word of finality, okay? Their civilization, their nation will come to an end. And note the picture that's given here. It says, with an overflowing flood. This image has really strong meaning for Israel, for the people of Judah. They, they can look back into the scriptures that they would have read in their day. They can look back, and they've heard this story told over and over about a man named Noah, who was instructed by God to build an ark because a flood was going to come and overwhelm the world because of the sin that existed in the world. And, and in all of this, what we find in the ark is salvation. It's a picture of salvation, of God's goodness in the midst of great sin. Now, much of these verses that follow then, they're a contrast of God's power versus Nineveh and how God's power is going to overwhelm foolish Nineveh. It says that Nineveh is led by a worthless counselor. The, the one leading this nation is not wise but worthless. They are like entangled thorns. Like drunkards as they drink, they are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Their demise is going to be sudden and complete. Verse 12 speaks of how they are at full strength and many. Yet, though they appear powerful, God is the one who will break his yoke off of Judah. God is communicating a definitive end to Nineveh and to, to Assyria. And we see this in the language that's being used here. Complete end. They will be cut off. Nineveh will be no more. It talks about their grave. So this is the language that's being employed here in these verses. Now, for a people frozen by fear-filled tension for years, this is unbelievable news. News so good that it would cause Judah, people in Judah, to ask the question, can it be? Can this actually be what's going to happen? If they looked around Judah, they may wonder why. Why would God do this at this time? They know that their sinful fathers were the ones who got them into this mess. They're living in a land that's threatened and fractured because their father sinned against God. And they know that they are living in a land in that day where their king, their leader, the, the counselor, is very much like the counselor of Nineveh as he has slain his own son. He very much looks like the description worthless counselor as well. Why is God 
doing this? What is compelling God to end Assyria? What, Judah might ask, is compelling God to save us from this overwhelming flood? Judah did not coerce God. They did not put a Jesus juke on God and pretend to start taking their faith seriously. They had not stopped sinning. They did not deserve what God was doing. Here is why God did what he was doing in that day. Because the Lord is good. That's why he is providing salvation that is undeserved. Because he is good. God's kind action was not a result of Judah's goodness. Their king was killing his own son. So, without being cheesy, if any of you were like grew up going to church camp and you heard like God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. Like, without being cheesy about this, God is good. That is a definitive, declarative statement about who God is, about the character. He is good. But God's willingness to put an end to the greatest civilization the world had ever seen up to that point is minuscule to what this is actually pointing towards. Because Assyria, Nineveh, is a portrayal of great evil. God's statement that he will bring to a complete end the evil empire signified by Nineveh is a precursor to God's promise to bring to a complete end of the reign of evil itself. See, we all want God to end the physical perpetrators of evil. Whatever evil might look like in our lives, we all want those physical expressions of evil to end, to go away, to be done with. We all want that, and that's good, and that's natural. But if we look at the example of Assyria, okay, after Assyria, they're going to be run roughshod over, run over roughshod by Babylon, okay? And then Babylon's going to uh, express their dominance. But after Babylon, then it's going to be Persia, and, and they're going to run over Babylon. And so this just keeps happening over and over. There's got to be more. There must be more that's being pointed to that God has to offer for us. Hebrews 9, verses 26 and 28. He, being Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus came a first time to deal with sin, and he will come a second time to save completely. The goodness of God shown through to Judah and his willingness to rescue his people from the throes of evil oppressors. But that, what we see in Judah and Nineveh, is merely a foretaste of what God did as he stripped sin of its power on the cross. That is the ultimate 
ultimate fulfillment of what God is doing. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the means to expose and defeat evil. Jesus' destruction of evil on the cross demonstrates God's dominion over everyone and everything. Okay, so this speaks to us today. All right, evil strikes fear in our hearts. It does. It plagues us. But what Jesus is saying on the cross and through his resurrection is that we need not fear what evil can do to our physical bodies. Evil grieves us, and we have tons of grief in this world. But amidst the grief, we have a more sure hope. Jesus will save. Jesus has defeated sin. And he will save. But I think we still have this question that pops up for us. Why does evil seem to win? Why does evil seem to win? There's a theological concept known as the already but not yet. The already but not yet. We live in a time known as the already. Jesus has come. He's defeated sin, but it's not fully realized yet. Okay, it's already happened, but not fully, not ultimately, not completely yet. We live in this in-between time known as the already, but not yet. Jesus has defeated evil, but it's not fully realized yet. So what that means is we have power to deny sin, okay? We have power to kill sin, but we cannot stop temptation. Sin still exists in this world, but the destruction of temptation will come to pass. So what we find ourselves in right now is in the midst of a war. This is not some dream that we are living in. As much as our culture says, pursue the American dream, we do not live in the midst of a dream right now. And the, the existence of evil does not discount God. It does not discount his presence nor his care for us. But evil does point to our need for the goodness of God. We can see very clearly there has to be more. There has to be something better. Judah would experience this in a very acute way. Okay, so historical uh, lesson here. I, I referenced this already, okay? So Assyria is going to be destroyed by Babylon, okay? So Babylon's going to come. They're going to destroy Assyria, and they're also going to drive out Judah from their land, okay? From the promised land that God had given to Judah, Babylon's going to drive them out, okay? So God tells his people that Babylon will drive them out, and they will have their way for 70 years, okay? Babylon's going to dominate over God's people for 70 years. And listen to what God says immediately after. Many of you, if you grow up in the church, will recognize this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, then you will call upon me. Many of you have probably heard this verse slapped on a coffee cup or seen it slapped on a coffee cup taken out of context. Like, we love to claim this, right? God has good plans for us. But the context of, of when this is being spoken to God's people is crazy. God is telling his people they will be ravaged by their bitter enemy. They will be driven out from the promised land, from their homes that God has given to them. This is a horrific reality. And this is going to last for a lifetime, 70 years for his people. And in light of this, God says, I have plans for you that are not evil. No matter what it feels like, my plan is for your good. I want you to be full of hope. I want you to call on my name. I am the one who will listen to you, who will love you, who will save you. In the face of despicable, unwanted circumstances, God is saying, I am working good for you. Never forget my love. We hear this in the New Testament in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. Not, not some things, not the things that offer comfort to us. All things work together for our good. Even when we can't see it, even when we hate it, God promises to redeem those hardest of things if we will trust him. Now, we may not find ourselves in those circumstances today, but we will get there. We will get to that point. When those days come, when it's hard to see the goodness of God, we will run to whatever it is that we have run to in our times of ease. Whatever we run to in our times of ease is what we will run to in those times of difficulty. So here, really clearly, this call for us to run to this good God, to believe God is good. The Lord is good. And don't delay. Don't assume you'll get serious about this when that time comes. In order for us to run to Jesus in those moments when it's hard, we've got to create that rut in our lives today and day after day. Our friends at Center Church, the, the pastors, would have never anticipated finding themselves in the position they are in today. Three months ago. Go back three months. Go back six months. Okay? They would never have anticipated what they're walking through right now. As dark as the days have gotten for them, they cling to a good God. Falteringly, it's hard for them 
It's not pretty many of the days, but they are clinging to the goodness of God. He is literally a stronghold in the day of trouble. Oh, that we, when that day comes for us, we would learn to cling to Jesus with everything in us. And we would do that today and tomorrow and over and over. We would preach to ourselves what the Bible preaches to us, that the Lord is good. All right, quick comment on verse 9 here. It says in verse 9, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. This verse right here is an example why we do not build theology off of one verse. Okay, if we did that, we would read this verse and we would expect God to vanquish all evil in our lives and never have to face it again. And this will be true in an ultimate sense. All right, God will completely end evil. That will happen. But verse 9 is a promise, a specific promise about Assyria. And what God is promising there did happen. It has occurred. So we should also hear the sufficiency in this, okay? He says he will make a complete end. We should hear the, su the sufficiency of God's punishment, of his vengeance, and his justice. God doesn't need to keep pouring out wrath. He does this one time, okay, on the sinner or on his son in place of the sinner. As we've talked about here on numerous occasions, discipline is not wrath. Discipline is not punishment, okay? Punishment is punitive. Discipline is restorative. But God's judgment is final. So, as a Christian, if we are believing the gospel, we don't need to fear God's wrath, okay? In the day of trouble, we see him as a stronghold. We're not terrified of him. He is our stronghold in the day of trouble. Psalm 12, 7 says, you, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us. A Christian doesn't need to live their lives terrified of God's wrath. We rest in God as our stronghold, our protector, the one who will guard us. What's stated in these verses, verses 7 through 15 of chapter 1 of Nahum, would resonate with the fatigued, terrified inhabitants of Judah. What should be expected from a God who contends that he is good is good news. We would expect good news from a God who is good. We read in verse 7, the Lord is good. And then in the last verse that we're looking at, we read, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. Nahum, whose name means comforter, okay? He is bringing a declaration of comfort, a declaration of good news to Judah. Like the first warm day of spring at the end of a long winter, this news revives hope. It breathes 
life. It warms the soul of the cold soul. It has been a long, bitter winter of oppression for Judah. But Assyrian tyranny is ending. The good news is a message of peace. Which is quite interesting, right? Because if you think about Judah and Assyria, Judah is not being reconciled to Assyria. This is so important for us to understand. This is God making peace with his people. That is what is most important. This is the peace that is of utmost importance. God making peace with humanity. There may be times others are going to hate us, okay? That is hard for us to be at peace with other people, but please never use this as an excuse to disengage from a relationship with other people. There will be times it's hard to be at peace with other people, but if we are at peace with God, generally speaking, it will allow us to be at peace with others. Maybe at times it means peace in our own hearts. They might not be at peace with us, but we can still be peace-filled towards them. So the call here is for us to prioritize peace with God, or more appropriately, his peace with us. The good news is God is doing for Judah what they cannot do on their own. They are being brought near to God. He draws near to them in what he's doing. And we have to see the goodness of God in his actions here. This verse, verse 15, is quoted in Romans chapter 10. It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is not a statement on, on form of feet, okay? My wife kind of makes fun of some web toes that I have, okay? This is not a statement on what someone's feet might look like. It's not a statement maybe on whether someone has had a pedicure recently. It's not an issue either of, of having like real sweet shoes, either sweet kicks, right? It's not about that, though there's nothing wrong with that. If you think about feet, in the days of the Old Testament, many people wore sandals. So their feet would have been dirty, animal poop on them, right? Feet probably cut up from thorns or rocks. There's nothing beautiful about those feet. What's beautiful is the news that those feet deliver. That news is what must overwhelm all else. Nahum's message is God's salvation of sinners from a brutal, oppressive regime. And we see this expanded in the gospel. The same God ultimately saves sinners from the brutal, oppressive rule of sin through the sacrificial suffering of Jesus on the cross. Assyria will never again invade God's people. Moreover, Christians are free from the enslavement of sin. Sin, evil, will eventually be wiped out, just like Assyria was wiped out. And in this, the goodness of God will be put on display for all of the world to see. We will find what we have longed for, 
we will be what we were intended to be once and for all. God will be our stronghold. We will be free from sin forever. But we are able to taste of that today, already. Not fully, but already it's breaking in. We can say no to sin. We can turn our back on evil. A couple points of gospel application here as we wrap up this morning. So clearly there's a call for us to believe that God is good, okay? We need to believe that God is good, to run to the stronghold of Jesus. But then as a diagnostic of whether we're doing that or not, in the days that we have, there's this call to enjoy God's goodness. Are you enjoying the goodness of God? Do you see it? Do you appreciate it? Does it move you to worship Jesus? There's a phrase in verse 15, keep your feasts. Feasts were given in the Old Testament as a means for people to remember what God had done. They marked significant events. We are to eat and to drink and to laugh to the glory of God so that we might remember the ways in which he has been faithful to us, that he has brought about salvation in an initial way and how he promises to bring that salvation to completion. Psalm 118, verse 24 says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In the days that we have, may we enjoy the goodness of God. May it be a stronghold for us in the midst of darkness, in the midst of really hard days. May we still be able to rest in God's goodness. And then secondly, God offers freedom from slavery. So spiritual comes before physical, okay? God does offer freedom from slavery for us. So as we look at our lives, so we're physical people, we deal with things in the physical realm. What is stealing your trust in God's goodness today? Is it fear? Is it laziness? Is it suffering? Is it hobbies? God offers freedom to us. Freedom from spiritual slave, slavery so that in the midst of our grief, we can still be hope-filled people. We don't have to grieve as though there is no hope. May we grieve with hope. Because God is a good God who offers us freedom, and in that we then can be good news people because we trust in a good God.